Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. It may interest you to know. I'm Tony and Marcolini. Today, I'm joined by co-host, retired Judge Bradley Ferenz, uh, and a very esteemed lawyer who specializes in intellectual property, Peter Anderson. So welcome, everybody. It's a pleasure being here. Hey, Peter, I wonder if I could ask you the first question. What is intellectual property? Um, I sat Superior Court and we did stuff like crimes and, you know, lawsuits involving things. Intellectual property always seemed to be something to me very esoteric and difficult to define. Well, it's intangible. I think that's the, the real issue. And it runs the gamut from patents to copyrights. Sometimes people throw in trade secrets. But it's all the you know these intangible property rights that can be conveyed. Um, they also include trademarks. That's a big section. But there are property rights that can be conveyed, but you can't hold them up to the light. You can't you know shake them and listen to the sound. I mean these are intangible rights. And um, uh, happily, I don't. Well, I shouldn't say happily. I'm sure people love patent law when they do it. I've never done patent law. My practice is really pretty much confined to copyright. Yeah, and it's all about creativity, right? This is this is where you go to to claim ownership on something you create. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So recently, um, there was a lot of attention on Skidmore versus Led Zeppelin, and uh, of course, you were the attorney, or one of the attorneys in the case. Could you talk a little bit about the just an, an overall view of the facts for that case? Sure. The um... In 1967, 1966, there was a group called Spirit that did a short instrumental piece that appeared on their album uh, that began with a big orchestration and then 45 seconds in was a guitar, a strummed guitar. And that strummed guitar played a descending chromatic scale, which is there are two dominant musical scales in Western music. The, the one is whole steps, and the second is includes half steps, like half notes. And that's the chromatic scale. And it's the equivalent, a descending chromatic scale is the equivalent of running your fingers across the black and white keys on a keyboard, okay? It can either go up or it can go down. It's not protected by copyright. It's been around for centuries. It's used in all kinds of music, but it has a descending chromatic scale. And there, there was a decision in 2014 by the Supreme Court that latches didn't apply in copyright cases. And within two weeks of that, a, a couple of lawyers filed a lawsuit claiming that the introduction of Stairway to Heaven, which also has a descending chromatic scale, was infringed the 1966 uh, instrumental recording called Taurus. So that's what the case was about. And um, because latches wasn't a defense, we basically had to go back 45 years. You know, a, a lot of the witnesses weren't around anymore. The, the gentleman who created that song, Taurus, had died in the 90s. Um, there were two band members of Spirit that still survived. Uh, there were three band members of Led Zeppelin who still survived, Jimmy Page, Robert Plant, and John Paul Jones. Uh, but many other people who were involved in it had, you know, gone by the wayside. And so the case was really just a copyright infringement case over whether the introduction of Stairway to Heaven copied protected expression in the spirit uh, composition, Taurus. Is there no statute of limitations 
That was my exact thought uh, as I was thinking about it. I think it occurred back in the late 60s, 68. It claimed to be together at a concert in 1970. And then, you know, they, they published uh, Stairway, what, 71 or two? I mean, at some point, um, is there no statute, no latches? And maybe you want to tell us what latches is before you, you know, go on, but no time frame. Uh, do, do I have a Beethoven, you know, um, descendant, you know, filing a lawsuit against somebody now? Um, there's two major, there's two um, limitations on when you can sue. One is the statute of limitations. The Copyright Act has a three-year statute of limitations, but it's basically a rolling three-year statute of limitations, meaning you can go back for the infringements or alleged infringements in the preceding three years. So if you set aside latches, then what you've got is the possibility, and this is what happened in the Skidmore case, the plaintiff claimed that Stairway to Heaven, who had inherited the rights of the um, songwriter uh, for, of Taurus, um, the plaintiff claimed damages only for the preceding three years. So they filed in 2014 and wanted to go back to, to 2011 in terms of profits from Stairway to Heaven. The other a way of, of barring claims is latches, which is an equitable doctrine that means that, that the plaintiff has sat on his rights and people have been prejudiced by that. And it is the defense that has for decades upon decades prevented people from doing what Skidmore did, from coming in after witnesses have died, memories have faded, coming in and asserting a claim that's 40 years old. In 2014, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that since Congress had uh, put a specific statute of limitations, that prevented the courts from applying latches. So all of a sudden, <laughs> latches went by the wayside. And ironically, the Supreme Court, um, Justice Ginsburg, uh, who is you know, prominent in our copyright jurisprudence, um, said that, well, you know, it's not a big deal because you just have to compare the works. Unfortunately, copyright cases also require copying. So one of the issues here in the Skidmore case was whether there was an opportunity for Jimmy Page and Robert Plant to even hear the song Taurus 45 years ago. And so we had testimony like, you know, um, we, we obtained bootleg tapes of almost every concert by, by uh, Spirit and they never played this song. They couldn't because they didn't have the orchestration in a concert that they had in the studio when they did the album. So we're sitting there, you know, 45 years later, trying to scrounge around bootleg tapes of Spirit to see if they played Taurus. Um, you know, there were two surviving members of Taurus. In deposition, they testified, yeah, I can't remember any time we played it. At trial, they said, oh, we played it all the time. You know, so... <laughs> You have those kinds of issues, and it's a, it's a real shame um, because, you know, if they, oh, there's a, another issue too, which is back before he died in the 1990s, someone asked the writer of, of uh, Taurus whether Led Zeppelin had, had taken the music, the, the Descending Chromatic Scale. And in a recorded interview, he said, I don't know, but I don't care. They're great guys. I like them. If they want it, they can use it. 
And when we moved for summary judgment and, you know, we had not only the recording of that interview, we had the, the published article, the recording of the interview and the reporter who authenticated it. And the Skidmore's lawyer said, yeah, well, he was joking. And so the judge said, well, maybe he was joking. <laughs> you know, so, so we end up in trial. But that's the kind of thing that happens if you're talking about a claim that's, you know, 40 years old. It's, it makes it tough. So you, you were saying that under the law, you can get up to three years of earnings. Um, I, I read that three years of earnings, and tell me I misread it, was like $3.4 million for that, that song and that period of time. I, I have to confess, you know, it's been five years. I don't remember the exact figure. Um, it might have been something like that. I know there was an issue over um, the earnings because we, the judge had issued a motion to eliminate that they couldn't use certain earnings because they were actually before 2013, 2011. And their expert used the earnings and said, no, I'm not using the earnings. I'm not using the earnings. And then finally, on cross-examination, he admitted, yeah, I, I used the earnings. So there were numbers floating around that, that never actually were the, the accurate numbers. But, but I think you're in the ballpark. How, pardon me for asking, does one calculate the earnings of a song, one song, um, for three years, 30 years after, 30, 40 years after it was written? Well, you, you have to look at the streams of, of income. First of all, you get performance income every time it's played on the radio. Okay, so that's a little bit of money. Second, you get income when it's streamed. And third, you get income when there's a release of it. And lo and behold, um, back, I don't know if you remember this, but before the, uh, within the three years, uh, Warner Chapel and, and Atlantic Records released a remastered uh, <laughs> I don't remember that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so all of a sudden you had this, you know, big bump in sales because of the remastered Stairway to Heaven on the remastered Led Zeppelin Four album, and then you had the issue of well, how much of the album payments are attributable to the one track that song? Yeah. So, and, and only the introduction, or you get credit for the entire song. Well, you know, ironically, the, the plaintiffs in plaintiff in discovery responses under oath said that the introduction is the most important part of the song. And even though it was pretty clear that this, I mean, it's a seven minute epic song, you know, and, and one of the things that I had at trial, I had a, a master guitarist who used to be the music director at the Kennedy Center, who went measure by measure and say, and, and it was wonderful. He had a guitar. And he was, and I he said, okay, this is the introduction. And I'd say, what happens next? He said, well, it's very interesting. You'll see all of a sudden you have more instruments and it speeds up a little. It starts like this. And then what happens next? Well, he puts in a major chord and major chords sound happy like this, not minor chords, which are, you know, sad chords. And he's demonstrating throughout. And then he says, oh, this is spectacular. All of a sudden you have two 12 string guitars. You know, and then the, the drum, which usually, drums usually start at the very beginning of the song, Stairway to Heaven, they come like four minutes in, you know, and, and he's like, you know, and then of course there's Robert Plant singing, and he's taking the jury, you know, through each, you know, step of this, and the plaintiffs are sitting there saying, well, it's the first 30 seconds. <laughs> so, I, I don't think they got much credibility from that argument, frankly, but it was a, it was a fun exercise. Now, initially, the court ruled against Led Zeppelin, 
right? And and you wound up reversing that on appeal. The so the uh, three judge panel found basically two errors. One, they, that there was an error in the jury instructions, uh, and second, that there was a um, uh, that the judge should have allowed, although they didn't find it an error, they suggested that on retrial, the judge should allow the playing of the studio recording. Um, then we, the, the Ninth Circuit granted on-bank review and disagreed, found the jury instructions to be correct, found the, um, the trial judge's exclusion of the studio recording to be correct, and also went further and, and really clarified the law on music cases in the Ninth Circuit. So just so... I'm clear. My understanding, again, I sat state, so the federal procedures and the number of courts hearing things is alien to me. Where I sat, it was, all right, Judge, you make the decision, and, and that was kind of it. Either myself or a jury was deciding a matter. Um, you won at the trial level, yes. right? Went up to yes. the appellate division, the federal appellate division, and a three-judge panel reversed it. And then that was heard by another panel of 11 judges? Exactly. In, in the Ninth Circuit and in the federal court system, the, initially you generally have a three-judge panel that decides a case, and then you can ask for review by the entire circuit. The Ninth Circuit is so big with 45, 50 judges that the Ninth Circuit draws 11 judges, the chief judge plus 10 others, to hear on-bank cases. And so uh, that's what happened. We had on, an on-bank decision or on-bank oral argument in front of 11 judges in Pasadena. And actually, I'm sorry, it was in San Francisco. And um, uh, that then has two benefits. One is you get a second shot at the apple. The other is they can actually change prior law issued by three judge panels. So for example, in the Ninth Circuit, for decades, there's been what's called an inverse ratio rule that in trying to establish that copying occurred, you could, if you have strong evidence of copying, you don't have to show as much similarity. You know, they can be kind of different, but if the evidence of copying is very strong, it, it's a very confusing rule and it leads to sort of this logical problem of, well, if you have no similarity, all the access in the world, all the possibility of copying means nothing if they're not similar. And so because we had an on-bank court, they were able to discard that rule that had been part of the Ninth Circuit jurisprudence for 40 years. And so um, that was one of the other benefits that we got from the on-bank decision. Now, you appeared, that was appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they denied certiorari. They refused to take it. Exactly. Did you have fantasies um, of appearing before the United States Supreme Court and having the band music played for them in the, in the courtroom? Well, I mean, I well first of all, I, you know, I, I would just just for the, the fun of it, you asked the justices if we could play that, even though it wasn't played at the trial level, would you like to hear it? Then you look at Ginsburg and say, Your Honor, you know, would you like to hear this? <laughs> well, I actually did argue a case in front of the Supreme Court in 1990 over the movie Rear Window. Okay. And, you know, there was a fun colloquy between um, uh, Judge Scal Justice Scalia and, and defense counsel. I was on the plaintiff's side on the winning side, and uh, defense counsel over why they put Grace Kelly in the movie when there was no comparable uh, character in the in the short story that my client had rights in. And Scalia said, oh, that's just Hollywood. You know, they, they put in a love interest. So what? You know, <laughs> he, was, he was an interesting guy to argue in front of. 
Well, actually, let's let's dip our toes in the rear window uh, case if we could, right? Is that Stuart versus a, a, a Bend? Is it or Abend? Like Abend. Yeah, Stuart uh, versus Abend. Can we talk a little bit about that? Okay, the 1909 Act provided for what was called a renewal copyright. Um, prior acts had two terms of copyright, but it was really just a formality. You could extend the the, the copyright. And, and if you didn't, it went into the public domain. So it was a way of, of filtering out works that people weren't interested in. In 19 and just, just to cut in just for one second, for people who don't have any background in copyright, the public domain really means that anybody can use it, right? Anybody can put on a Shakespeare play. Nobody has to pay Shakespeare's relatives to the extent that they his, his lineage still exists i don't even know the answer to that but nobody has to pay anybody yeah, for shakespeare after something's old enough you can just use it without right. yeah right. i don't know tony and then there's new rule maybe they can pay him just for the three years you know <laughs> <laughs> so when they were doing the 1909 act there was a concern that authors had poor bargaining positions because they didn't know if their book was going to be popular. And Samuel Clemens testified in front of Congress and talked Mark about Twain. One of the first, Twain? Mark Twain, Mark Twain testified yeah. about one of the first books that he had done that was a big success, but no one knew it was going to be a success. So he got like a half penny a copy or something. And so Congress changed the law for the 1909 Act to provide for two terms of copyright. The first term was owned by the author who could sell it. The second term, if the author was alive, they could claim it. If not, their their uh, surviving spouse, widow or widower, could claim it. And if they didn't have a spouse, then it went to the executor. So Rear Window raised the issue of if you get the rights there to make a motion picture based on a book, and the author says you can continue to use it in the renewal term, but the author doesn't live to renew. You know, his executor in that case got the renewal copyright free and clear of the author's grant. So the question was whether the movie with uh, Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, could continue to be distributed without a grant of rights from the renewal copyright owner. And that had been the law. That was the understanding going back to 1913, the first treatise on the 1909 Act. But a Second Circuit decision had said, no, no, that's not really fair. And the um, Ninth Circuit, my, my trial judge at the Ninth Circuit had said, I'm following the Second Circuit. And the Ninth Circuit said, we're not following the Second Circuit. And so I had one at the Court of Appeals and then happily one at the Supreme Court. So I'm told that it enabled tens of thousands of widows, widowers, and orphans to get additional payments once, you know, when they're in that situation where the author died in the first term, which was the case with Gone with the Wind, Margaret Mitchell was hit by a bus, unfortunately, and, and the renewal copyright, in order to continue to exploit Gone with the Wind, Turner had to pay off you know, um, her su successor. Same thing with Dr. Zhivago. I mean, th this is what happened you know, historically. Wow. Um, so I didn't even realize that. Uh, so with, now you were, physically in the courtroom arguing, even though, you know, you won, uh, you were there, of course, listening to both sides. What was it like to be in the Supreme Court arguing 
that case, the Stewart case? I mean, is there was there a sense of did you feel like it was just as important uh, as as any other issue to them? What did you get there? I mean, I know you said that Justice Scalia made the comment like, uh, you know, it's it's Hollywood. But did you feel like they were is equally focused on the legal issues or the legal principles? Well, I think anytime you're talking about, you know, whether it's a it's Led Zeppelin or it's an Alfred Hitchcock movie, you know, there's a certain cachet and a certain interest that may, you know, you, you might not have in some cases. Um, I, you know, the way the Supreme Court heard arguments at that point, they were in person. You, even if you're first in the afternoon, which we were, you had to be at a table behind the table be, where people were arguing. So you moved up, you know, during the morning. So I saw, you know, at least two arguments and they were engaged. You know, they, they are bright people. They are interested in the issues and they are engaged. Um, and our argument, you know, I, I thought I had a great time. I, you know, I went second because I had won at the Ninth Circuit. So I knew going in that there, you know, seemed, I wasn't going to get blank nine zero. <laughs> and so, so it was just, it was just, Great. It was fun. It was, you know, an issue that everyone had briefed well. And my opposing counsel, you know, is a great arguer. We're still friends. And it was a, a great opportunity. And, and I think the court really enjoyed the issues. Now, Thurgood Marshall never spoke at arguments and he didn't say anything. So I can't report that, that he got that involved in it. But, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor, Judge, you know, Justice Reinquist, you know, it was a panel from 1990 or a group from 1990, and, and they were all very interested in the issue. So, Peter, let me ask you a question off topic and, and financially. Who hires you um, and do you have to wait to get paid until you're successful? Because you're looking at people that want to be able to take a percentage of, of the income that's been created from this work of art and they haven't yet been authorized to receive it. So when they come to you, they're saying, we don't have the money, or you know, maybe they have it from some other source, but how does that work? Well, the first 15, 20 years of my practice, I represented individual sewing studios. And so I, those were generally on a contingency fee basis, and they was confined to movies because movies generate the kind of profits that at least at that point, songs didn't generate. So at that point, I was a contingency fee entertainment litigator representing the plaintiffs against studios. Um, I started doing a little work for a, a music company in the 80s. That kind of grew into doing more work for them. They were picked up by um, Azamba, which was at that point the biggest um, independent music label, which was then acquired by BMG, which was then acquired by Sony. So I've been doing work for Sony on the defense side for about 25, 30 years. Um, and I basically now do defense work primarily um, on an hourly basis for, for, for the, for the um, record companies, music publishers, and their recording artists and songwriters. I would, I would guess, if I had to venture a guess, that your success as a young lawyer encouraged your adversaries to take you away from the position where you could sue them. And the best way to do that is to hire you. So. Yeah, well, I mean, it was a different field. I mean, I, I, there have been, I can't think of a case where I've actually represented one of the major studios. Um, they, and I was told at one point that, that one of the studios was so upset about Rear Window that they would never hire me. <laughs> but, 
Right. And then somebody <laughs> thought about it and said, you know what? We don't want him coming after us for another case. Yeah. <laughs> what can we do to avoid that? Well, for me, I have seen that happen with other lawyers, yes. Well, for Rear Window, you're kind of champion of the underdog, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody loves the underdog, right? So so you really make an impact in copyright law at that point in time. And uh, and you do help the underdog. You do help the who ultimately the creators, and we can't lose sight of that. Mm -hmm. Right, while the the publishers or the the you know the recording companies, the movie companies, you know, they, I get that they get involved with putting out the money that distributes and um, ultimately pushes the ball forward. Uh, at the end of the day, the small person who creates that, whether they're you know writing that novel, writing that screenplay, creating that song, maybe in the basement of their house. Uh, right, that that person tends to get cut out on occasion, especially if they don't have a good entertainment lawyer or any mm -hmm. negotiation rights early on. They're they're coming into it with no real background, no real mm -hmm. track record, uh, and I think they can easily be uh, put in a disadvantage. And everyone else is making money off of something that came out of their head. And I get it with Rear Window, you wind up championing that, right? <laughs> I well, mean, with, you, come in, you come in strong for that for that creator. Yes, I mean, in, in the sense that representing plaintiffs, and I was representing screenplay writers who had their stories ripped off and things like that, you're representing the little guy against the big guy. Now, the interesting thing about the music uh, practice that I have is I have yet to have a case where the similarity is actually real. People sue over three notes and two chords, um, even though they're completely, you know, free for anyone to use. And for example, on the on-bank decision in Skidmore, um, one of the amicus briefs was by 147 screenwriters who said, you can't take the descending chromatic scale away from us. You know, you, you can't, you know, plaintiff had argued that there were, you know, three sets of two notes that were in common, you know, the, an A going to a B and a B, a C going to a D in different places. And these songwriters said, you know, we need to know, you know, what we can do. And if we can't use chromatic scales, we're going to get sued. You're impinging on our creativity. So, you know, I really did see that, um, that case as one for the underdog, for, for the individual creators who use descending chromatic scales, who get sued, um, because of two notes that are similar, you know, which is just ludicrous. There's only 12 notes, you know? And so, you know, I, I really do feel like I haven't gone to the dark side. I'm still representing, <laughs> you know, the creative people. So uh, let me ask you another, another question. It's kind of off topic, but you probably know the story uh, about Willie Nelson writing crazy and giving it to Patsy Cline for $50 on signing off on a napkin. Have you ever looked at that and said, you know, Willie, you should have come to see me, you know, or anything like that? <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's really interesting. There's a different mindset among musicians. Yeah. I mean, you know, Bob Dylan, I, I think, I remember if it was a billboard, he gave this long speech about how we all stand on the shoulders of the people who went before us. And Bruce Springsteen did something very similar. It may have been a TED Talk where he said, and, and he picked out a song, and I can't remember what it was, but it was a song from the 60s. And he said, every song I ever wrote is based on that song, you know. Yeah. And we're not talking musically. We're talking inspirationally, you know. And, and, and so you really see 
the the sort of camaraderie, this you know mutual respect among musicians at all levels, where they you know if someone says you know I had a great idea, I used you know a triplet here, you know, and someone else uses a triplet, and they say great, you know, sounds great, glad mm -hmm. it could help. Um, there was a claim that was made against someone, and I think uh, was it Elvis Costello. Someone came out and said. You know, it's also actually in Elvis Costello's music. And I think I may be wrong. It may not have been Elvis Costello. And he said, God bless you. You're, you're welcome to use it. You know, <laughs> this was about a year ago. So you really see, you know, this, this different kind of mindset. They're not a bunch of lawyers trying to figure out what claim they can assert. You know, there are a bunch of musicians who want the ability to make music without being sued. I remember about 20 years ago, I was listening to some Woody Guthrie. And up came a Bob Dylan song clearly a Bob Dylan song, chord-wise, everything the same, but the words were completely different. Right. And I listened to that and I said, oh my God, that, that's that, he copied it, you know? Um, I don't know that Arlo cares one way or the other, but it, it was pretty clear. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because a lot of music is actually based on public domain music. I had a case in the Second Circuit earlier this year over... I can't help loving you, which I, I didn't even know. And, and it was a rights case. It wasn't a music case. But it turns out that's actually a public domain melody that goes back to France in the 1700s. You know, but but the lyrics were different. The lyrics were protected, and the arrangement was fine and protected. But you know, you'd be surprised. And and I've seen instances where songs, you know, you, you someone says, oh, you know, that's the same as so and so. But if you look behind it. You know, it goes back three, four different versions to an original public, an initial public domain song. Well, is that the, uh, there was a, we can't help falling in love with the Peretti uh, yes. case? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was your case as well, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. I actually got to argue that in person at the Second Circuit. I think I was, we were one of the first ones to come back after the pandemic. That was in April. It was fun to get back into a court after two years. Well, Second Circuit, that's over here, right? That's New York. Uh, yeah. It's an East Coast one. So you came back, you came over to the to the, to the the East. <laughs> Absolutely did. And it was nice. It was my first time on a plane in two years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was another important case uh, that came out for copyright law. People are, you know, are still, I think the copyright law is still looking at that case as well. You've had a lot of meaningful cases of late. You really have your hand in, I think, what's as the law is kind of being manipulated a little bit now. Um, could you talk a little bit about that case? Everyone knows the Elvis, right? Elvis Presley sings like uh, "Can't Help Falling in Love," right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's well, we talked earlier about the 1909 Act's renewal scheme and the 1976 Act adopted a new one going forward that replaced the renewal scheme that. Um, it's called a termination scheme. It has two provisions that provide for people to terminate prior grants. And the issue was the ability of um, the plaintiffs, whether they had the ability to terminate the grant, given that that kind of termination is limited to terminations by an author, but the author at issue, there were three co-authors, but the relevant author had died before renewal, so he had no rights to, to transfer. As a result, the transfer that my client uh, got its rights by was by the author's widow, and her grant, a widow's grant, is not terminable under those 
circumstances. So it's a an it's an issue really of statutory construction. You know, let me ask you another a different question from a di different angle. Now, you know, I was coming in uh, to work the other day, and I had a Miles Davis on. Uh, and he was playing, as often jazz musicians do, um, old songs, new songs, but I don't want to say unrecognizable, but, you know, you had to listen. What kind of um, percentage would they be paying somebody for using their song? How, how would they figure that? that? Is there something that you'd have to, if he's, he's on stage or, or doing something and say, let's do whatever? Is there some calculus that's fixed or um, how does that work? Well, I mean, first of all, jazz, especially live performance, has a lot of improvisation. And what yeah. and a lot of that is just throwing in, oh, you know, musical building blocks, things that can't mm -hmm. be protected. Um, you can and you can go further than that because of what are called uh, performing rights societies. If you go into a, a concert or a club that has a, a performing rights license, you can perform any song you want to, you know, and and the the owner of the song will get royalties. Where it gets a little trickier is if you want to issue recordings. And if you there is a right to under the statute because Congress back in 1909 was concerned that Ita Italian companies were buying all the, the rights to musical compositions. Um, and I don't know where that came from, but, but that's what they were concerned about. And they have what's called a uh, compulsory license system where once a recording has been, of a composition has been issued, anyone else can record that composition. So Frank Sinatra can record a song that Liza Minnelli did or Judy Garland did and you pay compulsory license rates. Uh, sometimes what's happened beginning in the 1980s is actually sampling a recording. Uh, that came up in um, uh, when the new digital equipment started appearing. And that involves taking the actual sound recording and taking a piece of it and looping it through the song or repeating it. There's a, um, I'm trying to remember, Coolio. There's a Coolio song uh, gangster paradise that samples a Stevie Wonder song, and it's it's an incredible song. And th those in the very beginning, in the 1980s, no one got licenses, and so I was handling a lot of these cases where you had to try and fix all that. Nowadays, everyone gets a license. It's negotiated with the record company and the music publisher. It depends on things like how long the sample is, um, the importance of the you know the song, the underlying song. Um, those kinds of factors go into negotiating a license fee. Well, let me apologize to Tony Ann for asking all, all the questions. I appreciate her inviting me on here to co-host this thing. This is really her gig. So I have another question I got to ask. And a weird Al Yankovic, you raised it by saying gangster in paradise. <laughs> History did the words. Was he paying something for using the music? I mean, did he have to get permission to create, you know, uh, basically a, a completely different, I don't want to say, it's, it's, again, it's the same music, the same actual notes, but a completely different set of lyrics. Now, anecdotally, my understanding is that he tended to get a license, although he may not have had to. And the, and the reason he may not have had to is the fair use defense. The Copyright Act allows a um, unlicensed use if it meets certain criteria and things like it's not going to interfere 
with the underlying work. You know, if Al, Weird Al does a Parodies. parody of a Queen song, no one's going to buy the Weird Al song. And, and the classic example is the Supreme Court decision over Roy Orbison's song, uh, Pretty Lady, where a, uh, a rap group did one that was basically about a prostitute walking through the street and, and all this. <laughs> and it was a parody of Roy Ar Orbison's song. And the Supreme Court said it's a fair use. So parodies you know, can actually get away without having a license. Um, my understanding is that Weird Al, and I don't know this for certain, but this is just what I've heard, tended to get a license just to be safe. Uh, but, you know, parody is a um, a protected area of speech. You know, you should be able to make fun of things. You know, and the Copyright Act allows for it as long as certain things are met. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, that goes back to the, the uh, oh, what's the name of the case? I'm thinking this is, it's, it's the first time you really see it. Fisher versus uh, D's? No, before that, even the one with uh, Hustler magazine, uh, they do the 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 article about the the minister. Yes, it's it's the it, where they took it up. Yes, what is Reverend? No, I, yeah, I, I felt like saying Reverend Al Sharpton. I know this is not him. It's, it's, <laughs> no, 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 they do. They, they yeah. remember the, the story. The Hustler magazine is running the world majority. Yeah, and it's what about. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, I can't. I can't think of the name of the the, the case, but it's I like a famous movie. Supreme Court case. <sighs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it is, and it goes back. I remember it from law school. It's that that long ago, or around that time. And uh, yeah, it, 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 it's the same thing. I mean, you know, the First Amendment allows us to criticize people and and parody people, and you know, within limits. And and that was considered a fair use as well. Now I have to ask you this: What do you envision? Farewell. What would you Farewell. like? Ah, yes, I was good. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what would you like to see, if anything, change about this the present copyright law? Well, I think we have to wait and see if the small claims version of the copyright court actually works. They, they started copyright litigation can be long, expensive, and complicated. And sometimes, you know, we see a lot of cases at the district court level about a photograph, you know, a, an actress who puts, sees a paparazzi photo of her going into a store where she was shopping it and it puts, puts it on her Instagram feed for 24 hours and it disappears and it says, yeah, this was what I was doing today. And she gets sued. And so um, without commenting on whether that should be a fair use or anything, those are the kind of cases that Congress thought could be easily and, and relatively quickly resolved by basically a small claims version and, and yeah and and it, it, right exactly and, and that may work but i think we need time to see if that's going to work in the meantime you know we're still getting these these cases of you know a photograph you know and then with delayed discovery stopping the statute of limitations and latches not being around it can be a photograph that you know was posted in 2009 i had one like that you know, and someone comes out of the woodwork and says, that's my photograph. You know, so, you know, I, I think that's something that I'd like to see, you know, if it actually works. Um, in terms of my practice in particular, I am a proponent of the idea of the judge allowing an early determination of whether the music is actually similar in a protected way. 
because a lot of these cases have issues that are unnecessary to decide if, if it didn't copy protected expression. And we've got decisions now, including in the Ninth Circuit, that you can't protect four notes. Uh, you can't protect a you know, commonplace chord progression. But we continue to get cases where people are claiming, well, you copied three notes and two chords. You know, and so I, I, I'm a big believer. And in the, those instances when the court has done it, and I've had it, you know, successfully done, I think, four times since Skidmore, they've all resulted in either the plaintiff just dropping the case or in one instance, a, a, a relatively very modest, you know, settlement. And so, you know, I think those kinds of, uh, that's something I'd like to see more of. Judges just taking, being amenable to that. Some of our judges figure, oh, you're just going to get into fights over this, you know, let's do everything. And then you end up taking depositions of, you know, there can be 20 defense, you know, <laughs> it just gets crazy. When you have an issue that a court can decide and will decide at one point in any event, that it's probably a good idea to shortcut, shortcut all the litigation, shortcut all the depositions, all the interrogatories, everything, all the discovery, which can probably cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, brief it, get a decision, and then if you want to appeal it, fine, but the cost is de minimis relative to litigating everything and then finding out you've either won or lost. Right. Uh, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, and, and I would add to that one thing that, that is unique about music cases is they require experts. Lay people can't sit there and say, well, you can't protect this music. So what you have, it's not only is it exactly what you described, but it's two depositions, the plaintiff's expert, the defendant's expert, and the music. That's it. <laughs> yeah. you know, one of the things that you said, I don't want to say it troubles me, but we're all somewhat egocentric. We're all lawyers. You know, we're all relatively bright. You know, some I see a guitar back there, so I, I assume you play as well. So, you know, some are more musically talented than others. But, you know, when I hear music, I feel like I can tell whether or not it's the same or similar to other music. It's like if I have somebody making the same dish I'm making, you know, um, and you could copyright that, would I need an expert on taste? I mean, why well, do you need a musical expert to say it's sufficiently similar? It's not somehow just almost similar. I mean, yeah. why well, is it? A jury call. It, because an expert can identify the things that aren't protected. An expert can tell you this is a descending chromatic scale. And, and that gets you there. A lay person can't tell you. And I can tell you um, when during the, the, the four years, five years, this, the Skidmore case was pending, I asked everyone, you know, what do you think? Do you think this is a copy? Do you think well, it hold is? Hold on, wait. I, I, Tony, did you get asked? I know I didn't get asked. And he says yes to everyone. But nobody asks me at Everyone all. I, so I, I don't know if I count. <laughs> after depositions, after depositions, when the plaintiff's lawyer and the witnesses left, I'd ask the court reporter and the videographer. And I can tell you, and I asked friends who are musicians and friends who aren't musicians, and I can tell you without exception that the people who had a musical background said, no, that's a descending chromatic scale. And the people who didn't know anything about music and were listening to a guitar being strummed in a studio said, yeah, it sounds like a rip to me. I, my court reporter and videographer almost got in a fight because I, the I videographer thought it was crazy that it wasn't. I think what you're saying is there are certain, certain the chromatic scales, the standing chromatic scales, which are not copyrightable. And if two people play it, 
they're going to be identical. And those of us who don't know that are going to say, yeah, they're exactly the same. But it's the differences within that music when they use the same structure that makes it unique. Yes, and I would add one thing to it. There's a thing in music called timbre or tone color. You, if you hear a guitar and, and a trumpet, you know they're different instruments, even if they're playing the same music, okay? And the reason you know it is that each instrument has its own unique tone color. So if you have, as you did with, with Skidmore, if you have two works that are an acoustic guitar, steel strings being, being picked, Right there, it's going to sound similar. There's a, a, an old expert who once said, every song played on a bagpipe sounds the same. Okay? Well, and, wait, wait. I happen to know they are all the same. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and I've had presentations where I play two different songs on, you know, recordings of two different songs on bagpipes, and they sound the same. But, but the point is that, that a lay person, when they hear a, two acoustic guitars both playing, a, you know, descending chromatic scales and one with some differences, but both recorded in a studio with studio acoustics, both picked, you know, finger picked, you're going to lose the case. There was someone who did a study, it's in a law review article, where they took songs from, from two of the major cases in the Ninth Circuit, and they had them recorded with the same instruments, and then had them recorded with different instruments. And they, they went to, um, you know, test subjects, they played both, and the test subjects who heard the, the two songs played on the same instruments, 94% said that that's a rip, that's an infringement. The right. test subjects who heard them on different instruments, 94% said they weren't an infringement. Even though that, they're the same, same music. That's the danger of, of just saying, play the recording and what do you think? Because you really need an expert who gets past the tone color and says, these, this, these are the notes. You know, you know, forget the instrument because what we we end up with sheet, sheet music. These are the notes, and they're different, or they're the same. Is there a certain amount of? It's going to sound terrible, but copying that's allowed. Well, you can always copy public domain elements, and you can always copy ideas. And so, for example, um, I had one case where the the complaint alleged very specific notes and chords and you know it was like a series of six chords in an unusual key you know and they and they were in a hip-hop song or um, a popular song and i thought okay this looks like a real claim and i went to my expert and my expert said well look up flamenco music that's the definition of flamenco music that's the the, the eight chords the the phrygian scale played on a guitar, that's the definition of flamenco music. It's been around for hundreds of years. And the only thing that they did, they had different notes, but they both did, had the idea of a popular song in present day using flamenco music in the background. Anyone can do that. And, and, and you know, that's a case that once the other side realized it, you know, it was resolved, you know, but, but yes, you can copy ideas, um, you can watch a movie and really like the idea, <clears throat> excuse me, of depicting, of private, Saving Private Ryan, you know, depicting that story. And as long as you don't copy the expressive elements, dialogue, characters, and things like that, you want to do a World War II movie? God bless you. You know, anyone can do a World War II movie. There are things in music that are comparable to that. Anyone can do a descending chromatic scale. 
So really, I mean, what what you need to avoid is an exact replica, right? You need you can't be stealing dialogue, like you said. You can't be creating characters. You can't draw a cartoon that's got Bugs Bunny in it and call him Fred. Uh, well, but yeah, yeah but it's still mean, just like Bugs Bunny. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, in music, I mean, I, I said before there in the, in our Western music, there's only twelve notes. And, and, and there's only certain combinations that are pleasing to the ears. If you're talking about chords, you know, there's actually a YouTube presentation on the number, your chords are, are designated like one, four, five. And no one plays one, two, three, four, five. It doesn't work in your ear. So one, four, five is a standard chord progression. You can Google it. It's in a million songs. And so, you know, you can't, copyright that but if you do a melody you know 12 notes 15 notes of melody that's actually copied yeah you can protect the melody if it's sufficiently long but if you're talking about three notes of melody four notes of melody no the ninth circuit has said maybe seven notes but even that's marginal you know it, it has to because if, if, if you start allowing people to protect and claim exclusive rights to five notes that takes five notes out of the music vocabulary. That's, you know, and there's only, like I said, a limited number of notes that sound good and sequences of notes that sound good. Do you think that there are people out there who literally have come up with music, which would be um, a violation of the copyright, but did it without knowing, or there's a previously written or existing piece of music that sounds just like it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I had, I had a case. Are they protected? No, because copying is a required element in a copyright case. It's not in a patent case, but in a copyright case, you actually have to prove copying. And I had a case- So they're protected. I mean, if I, if, if I wrote something and it was exactly the same as Stairway to Heaven, but I'd never heard it. I was, you know, and yeah. I could prove I never heard it. I've been living in Fairbanks, Alaska for the last 50 years and never left. Um, I would be protected. That, that's a classic example. You're so close to the classic example, which is a, a, a person on a desert island who writes uh, Romeo and Juliet. Never heard of Shakespeare. They write Romeo and Juliet. Their version of Romeo and Juliet, if someone copies it, is copyright infringement. If you copy it from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, it's not because Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet is in the public domain. So that actually, you, you hit on another unique principle of copyright law, which is if you create something, and it is, you know, a sufficient length and originality to be protected. And you didn't copy it from someone else. You can claim a copyright in it. Well, my father was fond of saying that if you put a monkey down in a piano, eventually that monkey's going to hit a chord. So <laughs> I would assume it does, in fact, exist that people create the same melodies. Well, you know, there's actually a Ninth Circuit case about a monkey who took a, a photo that said a monkey yes. cannot be an author. <laughs> which, which, to give you a hint into you know, a peek into the Ninth Circuit, there's actually a case before that that ruled that that aliens cannot be authors. From a wow. we didn't know from about a religious that. group that claimed that their 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 work had been written by aliens and that someone copied it, and the court said, "Well, if they wrote written by aliens, can't help you." So. <laughs> We actually had the, the monkey selfie guy on the podcast. Oh. <laughs> Do we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very interesting. Again, I, I think copyright law is not covered enough, uh, given the fact that, you know, people 
want to know about this. I mean, I get a lot of questions of people, you know, wanting to know they want to create a song, they want to create something and they want to know when, you know, how much, how much even copying can I do before I get in trouble? You know, that's like a common question. Uh, because, you know, if I, if I hear a song, like you mentioned Stairway to Heaven, it's a seven minute song. Uh, and somebody's making a case of the fact that, you know, the first, you know, whatever, 25 seconds, uh, the first 50 seconds has something similar. Is that a high enough percentage of the music to be considered copyright infringement? And when do I cross over the line? Like, when do I cross the Rubicon? You know, and I get that question a lot from people. And I say, you know, I'm not sure when you cross the Rubicon because I don't do copyright law. <laughs> but well, somebody does and can answer that. Well, there, there, are, there are certain principles. And so, for example, in music, you know, you, you can't copyright three or four or five notes and you can't copyright uh, um, chord progressions. But that, that leaves a lot that you can do. In, in literary, in the, you know, books and screenplay context, you know, the Ninth Circuit looks at certain factors, you know, dialogue, characters, plot, sequence of event, pace, theme, and mood. And you look for similarities in those elements. And you, they have to be concrete self similarities. They can't be at a general level. Otherwise, basically, every horror movie is a copy of every other horror movie. So there, there are guidelines. Um, but, you know, it is also an area that Learned Hand said like 80 years ago, there are no clear guidelines. Every case is going to, you know, depend on the similarity, and you just have to figure it out. I think that nuance uh, is what makes your field so interesting. Well, you know, it, it does. Yeah, I, I agree, and it also is a great context for argument, and, and and I don't mean that in a divisive sense. I mean, you know, you really get challenged to try and explain how these things are similar or how they are dissimilar. When you're talking about something as, you know, amorphous as as notes and chords or characters and plots, you know, it's it's a, a very interesting area. Um, I'm lucky to to practice in it. And you've been so successful. Well, so. knock on wood. What <laughs> <laughs> a wood desk. I'm not who. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I know we're out of time. I really want to thank you for joining us. You've um, really had an illustrious career. Some of your cases uh, have mattered, I think, significantly in your field. Uh, so I applaud you for that. Uh, and I hope you'll and I hope you'll keep coming back and talk to us as you get new exciting cases. <laughs> well, I, 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 it's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And if the judge comes back, I'll come back. <laughs> you hear that? <laughs> I heard it. You have to come back, Judge. Now. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you. Thank you. All right, I'm going to close the podcast. Say thank you from uh, all of us here at uh, It May Interest You to Know and have a great day. Take care. Bye. Thank you.